they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring to me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen, church. Harvest, please go ahead and have a seat. Good morning to you all. What an awesome time of worship coming to the foot of our Savior's throne, so to speak, and worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Well, we're not quite there, but I'm going to say it anyway. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays because I love family. I love fun. And I love food. But you know, when it, when it comes to Thanksgiving or really any big family gathering, oftentimes there's, a, there's an unspoken rule, especially around the dinner table, and this rule, it's not a universal rule by any means, but there's many people who follow this unspoken rule. And it's said something like this. When we're together, don't talk religion or politics. You know what I'm talking about? Heard that, sensed that, felt that. Don't talk about religion or politics. Let's just be together. Let's just have fun. Let's not get uncomfortable Maybe we could add, let's not talk about the important stuff. We don't want to have any fights. We just, we just want to be nice. But then, of course, you know, we all have that one family member who ignores this rule just because they like to stir the pot. But in general, many people obey that rule. We get to our passage this morning, and interestingly enough, Jesus does not obey that rule. He, his perfect He's perfectly fine, that is, with, with talking politics and religion, and we see at the end of our passage here, even in the same sentence. Before we actually dive into the text, I want to take just a moment, because I want to back up, and I want to look at the work that we've done through the book of Mark over this past year. Believe it or not, we started the gospel of Mark in January. And I told you back then that one of the things that Mark deals with is this question, who is Jesus? In fact, the, the first eight chapters deal with that question, who is Jesus? And Mark gives evidence to the identity of Jesus mostly through his miracles. We saw Jesus heal people and cast out demons and feed thousands of people and walk on water. And calm a storm. And all of that was meant to show us who he was. He has control over nature. 
He has control over the natural and the supernatural. And that section of Mark culminated in Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And then after that section, we entered a new section. Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, knowing his time for the cross was near. But along the way, he spent most of his time with his disciples, teaching them what it meant to be a disciple. In fact, the rest of chapter 8 and then chapters 9 and 10 deal with the question, what is a disciple of Jesus? What does that look like? And then we came to chapter 11, and here we hit Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. Here he deals with the temple. He deals with the religious system. He deals with the religious leaders. And after Jesus enters Jerusalem, of course, we saw him turning over the tables and going WWE on everybody. And then the religious leaders approach him with a question. What gives you the right to do this? Where do you get your authority? That's what they questioned him. And that's really the question that we have been dealing with for the past several weeks. You'll remember we've been dealing with this, but we've been dealing in it through the lens of rejection. Because the religious leaders are not coming to him wanting to learn. They're coming to him to try to trap him. They have rejected him. They're challenging his authority because they reject him. Now, that rejection is going to continue through our story today and honestly through the rest of Mark as we deal with his authority. But in effect, let me remind you, Jesus has already made a statement about his authority. He didn't do this directly. He did this indirectly, you may remember. He did this indirectly when he asked them the question about John the Baptist's ministry. Does it come from heaven or does it come from man? And Jesus said, if Jesus had said and come out and and directly said, I am God, I am the Messiah, if he had done that, they would have arrested him for blasphemy. So he answered their question, but he did it indirectly. So now that Jesus has made that indirect statement about where his authority comes from, the religious leaders are going to test that. They're going to test that authority by bringing him questions. And we'll see these questions over the next several weeks. Today, they're going to question him about taxes. By the way, that's a very pleasant topic, especially coming up on the holidays, taxes. They're going to question him about taxes. Now, next week, they're going to question him about the resurrection. And finally, they're going to test him with a question of, what is the greatest commandment? So that's what we have to look forward to for the next several weeks. They're bringing him this question up, questioning his authority. But remember, these are not honest questions. They're questions meant to trap him. Underneath these questions, they are rejecting him. They're coming from a place of rejection, not a place of submission. That brings us to our text this morning. And here's the bottom line. Here's the big idea from our text Honor authority, worship God. Honor authority, worship God. Honor authority. Honor those who are places in authority. Honor those in office. Honor those in charge. Honor those in relational authority. Parents, mom, dad, husband. Honor those who are in authority. And if you don't even like the person, at least honor the position that they hold. Honor them, but worship God. You are first and foremost loyal to, accountable to, and indebted to Almighty God. He is the creator and the sustainer of all. Worship God. That's the big idea from the text. Honor authority, worship God. So with all of that in mind, here's your first point. 
We honor authority and worship God through genuine speech. We honor authority and worship God through genuine speech. How do we do this? How do we honor authority? How do we worship God? First and foremost, we do this through genuine speech. Notice the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come to Jesus, and notice they speak the truth. They do. They're speaking truth here. Look at verse 14 again. It says, and when they came to him, they said, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, the irony is that's truth. That's the truth. Jesus is true, meaning here he's honest. He doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He is not swayed by appearances. He teaches only the way of God, that which is right and true. Their statement is a true statement, but it does not come from genuine hearts. It does not come from a place of genuineness. They have secret motives here to trap him. They're saying what is true, but they're saying it through flattery. I mean, just stop and look at it again. You can hear this, hear their tone. You know, teacher, we know that you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Can you hear it? Can you see it? Flattery is just dripping off of these religious leaders. Stop and think for a second, what is flattery? Flattery is a compliment with an agenda. Flattery is a compliment with an agenda. And it doesn't matter if the compliment is true or not. It's a compliment with an agenda. And that's what they're doing. They're flattering Jesus. They're trying to get him off his guard. They're trying to make him feel like, well, you know, I try. They're flattering him. I'm going to tell you a story that happened to my wife and I some 12 or so years ago. We lived in a rental house on Spitler Drive for about four years, and our landlord on that house lived in South Carolina, and he was a great guy. We had a great relationship with him, and he told us, you know, if something's wrong with the house, fix it and dock it from the rent. Just a great guy. We loved him, had a great relationship. Well, when we moved from there, the tenant that moved into the house after us was, I'm going to be careful with my words here. A complete jerk. I mean, he was rude. He was arrogant. He was obnoxious. And when I finally gave him the keys and left, I was glad to be done with him. One year later, that tenant, that rude, arrogant guy, he calls me. Turns out he'd been evicted from the rental house, no surprise there. And he was trying to sue our former landlord, the great guy that we had such a great relationship with. And when he called me a year after he had been rude and arrogant to my wife and I, he started the phone conversation off this way. Hey, man. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Honestly, I spent the first 30 seconds going, who is this? (laughs) He was trying to flatter me. He was wanting me to go to court to testify against our landlord. I didn't do it. Flattery. Ingenuine speech. In the Pharisees' case, it was true speech, true words about Jesus, but behind them was an intent to flatter, to butter up, to get the person in a good mood so that he or she will do what you want. In the Pharisees' case, they're trying to trip him up and make him feel good, catch him off their guard. 
That was their agenda, but Jesus didn't fall for it. Side note, Jesus' amazing ability to avoid all their traps is more evidence of his divinity, more evidence of who he is. He knows what's going on. He knows their thoughts. He knows their intentions. He's not fooled by their flattery because he's God. If they actually grasped who this was they were, they were speaking to, they would realize the absurdity of this. Our speech toward man and toward God should be genuine. We should honor the authority in our lives with genuine speech. We should worship God with genuine words. When it comes to the authority in our lives or really to anyone in our lives, we should be genuine. This means first and foremost that we should speak the truth. We honor people when we speak the truth. When you're dealing with your boss, when you've been pulled over for speeding, when you're confronted by a parent or a spouse, speak the truth. Be genuine. Answer their questions with honesty, as uncomfortable as it may be. Secondly, when it comes to genuine speech, we should be careful not to resort to flattery, not to try to get on someone's good side, not to try to make ourselves look good in their eyes. Now, there's nothing wrong with a truthful compliment. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging someone's accomplishments or acknowledging their clothing or whatever. But when we have agendas behind those compliments, we've crossed a line. When we bring the boss a box of cookies when it comes time to promote someone in the company, I mean, come on. You compliment your father's shirt because you want to borrow his truck. Flirting with the sales representative to try to get a good deal on a product. Flattery. There's an agenda behind the words. And let's take this a step deeper. What is this really? When we're tempted to flatter, what is that really? What are we trying to do when we're trying to butter somebody up? You know what it is? Ultimately, it's fear of man. Ultimately, it's fear of man because what we're trying to do is elevate our perception of ourselves. We're caring more about what they think of us in that moment. It's fear of man. And Proverbs 29, 25 reads, the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. When you're feeling tempted to flatter and elevate yourself in the eyes of, an, of another, that is a trap. When we use flattery to try to sway someone, eventually what's going to happen, our intentions are going to be made known. It's going to get out at some point. People are smarter than we give them credit. And once it gets out, that's going to affect how they perceive us. We'll be labeled a flatterer. We'll be labeled selfish. We'll be labeled someone who's only in this relationship for themselves. And that's going to affect the people's ability to trust us. But to be genuine means that we fight against that fear of man. We don't allow our words to be swayed toward flattery out of fear of man. We strive to speak genuinely out of love, not fear. We honor authority and worship God through genuine speech. Okay, so how does this work in relation to the worship of God? First, just like I said with authority, we speak what is true about God. We speak the truth. We speak what is true about God. John 4, 24 reads, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
Our words that describe God should be true words. The truth is, there's a lot of false ideas about God floating around out there. Here's a big one. This idea that God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that? A lot of people believe that. In fact, some have gone as far as to say, that's a Bible verse. It's not a Bible verse. It's not even a biblical concept. And it kind of sounds right at first. You know, maybe you first hear it, God blesses those who are, you know, trying to do something for themselves. God blesses the self-sufficient. Sure, that might sound right at first, but it's not scriptural. In Scripture, we don't see God helping those who help themselves. We see God helping the helpless. We see God helping those who cry out to Him because they know they've got nothing. Just think about all the people we've seen Jesus heal during our journey through Mark. The blind, the lame, those captive to demons. Jesus helps the helpless. Jesus helped those who could not help themselves, those who cried to him because they come to the realization that they need him because they can't help themselves. Back to our point. Our words that describe God should be true words. Did you know that we as elders, we evaluate the worship songs that we sing? Did you know that? Why do we do that? We want to make sure that the lyrics of the songs line up with what Scripture says about God. If there comes across to us a song and the lyrics are not clear from Scripture describing God, we don't sing it because we want to sing the truth about God. And the same should be true of us in our everyday lives. We should say true things about God. Now, some of you might say this, I do speak the truth about God. I do. But I'm going to confess that I don't always feel it inside. I understand that. Our hearts are fallen. And often we struggle with truly believing deep down at the heart level what our lips are saying about our Creator. In fact, the Pharisees and the Herodians spoke the truth about God, but they didn't believe it. Their hearts were not enveloped with the truth of the words that they were speaking. They did not believe what their mouths were saying. And they were doing this, of course, maliciously, but we may not be malicious, and yet sometimes we simply struggle in our faith. You know, there are times in my life that in my mind, I know God is love, but in my heart, I struggle to believe it. I say with my lips, God is love, but my heart struggles to believe it. Why? Because my heart is full of doubts. My heart is wayward. My heart looks at itself. My heart looks at the surrounding circumstances that are out of control, and I think, how could God be loving if? How could God love when this is happening? And though my head might know that God is love, my heart doesn't believe it. Ever been there? If you find yourself in that place, let me encourage you, don't let that stop you from speaking the truth. I will still declare that God is love even if my heart doesn't believe that. And in the meantime, we come to the Lord with our struggle and we pray that he works on our heart. Do you remember the cry of the father of the demon-possessed child in Mark 9? What did he say? I believe... Help my unbelief. 
And that is the cry of our hearts sometimes, and it's okay to admit it. It's okay to admit, I'm struggling, I know, but my heart, it's not there. Let me encourage you in those times, stay the course. Run to Jesus for the work that your heart needs. You know, Francis Chan once said, sometimes I don't want God, and all I can pray is, God, I want to want you, but I'm not there. When your heart does not believe the things you know to be true about God, be honest with him. Tell him how you're struggling and then cling to this promise, Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know, a day is coming when your heart will be perfect and you will always feel what you know is true. Till then, Cling to the promise. We honor authority and worship God through genuine speech. Second point here. We honor authority and worship God through sincere motives. Through sincere motives. Back to the text. The Pharisees and Herodians approach Jesus with flattery. Pick up the story in the latter half of verse 14. They ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So they bring Jesus a question. But remember, this is not a sincere question. They're trying to trap him. This is not on, they're not honestly looking for information on how to better their lives and how to grow. They're just trying to trap him. But let's examine the question. Let's take a moment and just look at verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, there's some history behind this question. And I'm going to take a moment just to dig a little bit and give you some historical background about this question here. In A.D. 6... That's the year A.D. 6. Caesar Augustus deposed Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, because Archelaus violated the Mosaic law and became very unpopular with the Jews. The Jews then appealed to Caesar Augustus, and he overthrew Archelaus. He came to the Jews' rescue. However, this led to Caesar Augustus imposing a tax on the Jews, a new tax, a different tax. And this is the tax that we're talking about in Mark 12. Now, about that same time, there was a Galilean named Judas, and he opposed his countrymen, the Jews, for paying this tax to the Romans because he saw this as paying tribute to Rome above God. So this Judas then led a revolt that was quickly squashed, which, I mean, you know, what was he expecting? He was going up against Rome. And then Judas was defeated by Rome, and that tax remained. And, of course, it was unpopular, to say the least, among the Jews. That's the history that's going on here. So this idea of taxation was very sensitive because these historical events had happened. There was a lot of tension between Rome and the Jews. And there's something else I want to point out here, too, that we may not recognize. It's not by accident that we have these specific groups coming to Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, we today in America reading this, we may not give these groups much thought, but the original readers of Mark's gospel would have raised their eyebrows. The who and the who? This is actually, interestingly enough, not the first time we've come across this peculiar partnership. 
In Mark chapter 3, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Remember that? And the Pharisees were so enraged by this that they went out and they conspired with the Herodians. Mark planted that seed way back in chapter 3, and now it's coming out. The plot is coming out here in chapter 12. So these groups make up a peculiar partnership because each group held drastically different beliefs about the state, about Rome. The Pharisees were nationalistic, meaning they were for the nation of Israel. They held to Jewish tradition. They held to the law. They were zealous for the Jewish customs. They were all about their Jewish heritage. They disliked the tax, but they put up with it. Now, the Herodians, on the other hand, they were all for Herod. In fact, you can hear it, right? Herod, Herodians. doesn't take a genius to put that one together. They were all for Herod. They were all for Rome. They wanted Roman rule. They loved the stability. They loved the protection. They wanted Rome to rule, so they were completely happy to pay the tax. They were completely happy to support Caesar because he gave them what they wanted. So when they bring this question to Jesus, what they're trying to do is put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Who are you going to side with, Jesus? And you remember, interestingly, that's exactly what he did to them when he asked them the question about John the Baptist. He put them between a rock and a hard place. Either way they answered, they were going to lose. Same here with Jesus. Either way he chooses, he loses. If Jesus opposes the tax, he's going to be arrested for treason. If he supports the tax, he's going to lose favor with the people. They're trying that same tactic on Jesus, which tells us something about the Pharisees and the Herodians. They don't have any original ideas. They're not coming to Jesus to glean information on how to think about taxes, on how to to weigh taxes in my relationship with God. They're coming to him with false motives. Now, notice that word in verse 15. It says about Jesus, but knowing their hypocrisy. No sincerity going on here. Knowing their hypocrisy, the Pharisees and the Herodians are being completely hypocritical, and Jesus is about to unmask that. Look at verse 15 again. It says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, whether they realize it or not, Jesus is already exposing their hypocrisy with that, with that statement. He asks for a coin. Now, presumably, because they produce the coin, one of them has the coin on their person. They pull out a denarius, and they hand it to Jesus. Now, a denarius was about a day's wages for the average laborer. So if you worked all day as an average laborer, you'd get a single coin, a denarius. And on this coin was stamped the image of Caesar. And there was an inscription along with that image that read like this, Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus which means this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. This coin was claiming deity for Caesar. And not only that, but the Greek word here that Mark uses in the text for likeness in verse 16 can be translated image, like you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Exodus 20, verse 4. This coin was, in in effect, an idol. In fact, there were many Jews who considered these coins idols and that believed carrying them was a violation of the second commandment. 
they're carrying around an image in their pocket. And simply by having the coin on their person suggests a certain amount of loyalty to Rome. And they brought that portable idol into the temple where Jesus is. Just further illuminates their hypocrisy. They have the audacity to come to Jesus and try to trap him with a fake question about taxation. All the while, they're breaking the second commandment. We honor authority and worship God through sincere motives. Now, what do I mean by that? We strive for sincerity at the heart level, at the motive level. Not only should our words be genuine, but our lives should be lived in sincerity. The Pharisees were feigning worship of God. They were hypocritical. They were all about looking holy, but inside they were full of dead man's bones. How are we? Where's the hypocrisy in our own lives? How are we hypocritical toward authority? Yes, but maybe just in general. Do you act one way when your boss is looking, but a different way when he's not? The boss is coming, got to look busy. I understand there's an element of human nature to that I do, but it's hypocritical. It's going back to that fear of man over the fear of the Lord. Do you sneak around your spouse, hiding things from him or her? Do we rail against that idiot that broke the speed limit and zoomed around us, and then one mile down the road, zoom around someone else? Do we talk to our children about respecting authority while bad-mouthing political leaders? Speaking of politics, do we let our political bent harden us toward the other side? Do we lean toward one political par- point, party to the point that we forget the other side is made up of people in God's image? Do we claim to believe God's word when we say love others and at the same time let our thoughts and words and actions devalue the people in authority over us simply because we don't believe the way they do? What about our relationship with God? How can we be hypocritical? Well, do you sing praises to your Savior on Sunday morning and then go home and yell at your wife? Do we read God's word and see where we need to change and yet fail to apply God's truth? James talks about that. He puts it this way. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Do our lives line up with what we claim to believe about God? If not, we're just as bad as the Pharisees. The Queen Mary was the largest ship to cross the oceans when it launched in 1936. Through four decades and a world war, she served until she was retired, anchored, and set up as a floating hotel and museum in Long Beach, California. During the conversion, her three massive smokestacks were taken off to be scraped down and repainted, but on the dock, they crumbled. There was nothing left of the three-quarter-inch plate steel from which they'd been made. All that remained were about 30 coats of paint that had been applied over the years. The steel had rusted away. And that's a picture of the Pharisees. 
Jesus says in Matthew 24, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. On the outside, we look good, but on the inside, what do we look like? The Pharisees were so focused on looking godly, they actually failed to know God. Are we so concerned with how other people see us that we act the part, but we fail to deepen our relationship with our Savior? And if you find yourself in that position, repent. Go to God, repent, and work on that relationship with Him. Let Him do His work on the inside. We honor authority and worship God through sincere motives. Last, we honor authority and worship God by giving each their due. We honor God and worship, or we honor authority and worship God by giving each their due. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Boom. If ever there was a mic drop, that was it, right there. Jesus masterfully avoids another trap and at the same time answers their question. By stating it this way, Jesus is both agreeing with the Pharisees and the Herodians. They can't argue against his response. They ask, should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him. Now that word for render there, that can be translated restore to an original possessor. Restore to an original possessor. Caesar made the coins. Let him have them back. God created us with breath in our lungs to worship him. Give him the worship that is truly his. In this response, Jesus is saying, yes, you should pay your taxes. He is. In this statement, he is supporting to to a degree the Herodians. Citizens should pay the government what the government sets as tax. Tax evasion is a form of theft and not something that Christians should be a part of. And the Bible further illuminates this idea in Romans 13. I'll read verses 1 and 2. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's right out of the Bible. We are to be subject to the governing authorities, and that includes taxes. Now, you might argue that our government is abusing the tax system. They set taxes way too high. They burden their citizens. Okay, you know what? There might be some truth to that. But I'm going to point out that here in the United States, yes, there are times when taxation hurts, no doubt. However, we have not been as abused as other countries and other times abuse their citizens. I don't agree with everything the government does. Don't get me wrong here. But nevertheless, we are to submit to them, and the only exception to that is when they demand of us something that is clearly against God's word. If the government asks us or demands of us something against the word of God, then yes, by all means, we worship God. But taxation is not against Scripture. God's word does not say pay your taxes unless they're too high. It simply says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus, on the other hand, on one hand, sides with the Herodians, but on the other hand, he sides with the Pharisees. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What belongs to God? We do. 
We belong to God. Caesar may have stamped his image on his coin, but God stamped his image on us. We belong to God. Genesis 1 says we were created in God's image. We should give the government what they're due, but we should give God what he is due, and that is worship. You know, in just a few verses after this, a scribe questions Jesus about the greatest commandment, and Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. We'll get to that in a couple weeks, but that's worship. And that's what we are to do, to worship God through unconditional, wholehearted love. Support the government. Honor those in authority. Love and worship God. To worship something is to display true worth or value. John Piper writes it this way. True worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. The inner essence of worship is the response of the heart to the knowledge of the mind when the mind is rightly understanding God and the heart is rightly valuing God. Worshiping God is holding God in the highest place in our hearts. It's to love Him far above anything else. It's to conclude what Scripture says about Him that he is the creator, he is the sustainer, and it's moving in our hearts to respond in a commitment and surrender to him. You know, there's, there's one reason why singing is such a popular response of worship. Because singing combines the truths about God, the lyrics, with a melody and poetic structure that moves the heart to a place of worship. And here's another thought since we're on this topic. When it comes to honoring authority and worshiping God, if paying your taxes is something that stirs up anger within you, then I encourage you to view it as being obedient to God's word. Submit to the government in that way. You are submitting to Scripture and therefore worshiping God. We honor the authority in our lives and worship God by giving each their due. Do you know what this passage teaches us about Jesus' authority? That he, as God, has the right to tell us what to do with our money and our time. Honor authority. Worship God. So in this message, I confess... I broke the unspoken rule of family dinners. I talked about religion. I talked about politics. But where better to discuss these things than in church? Where better to glean the insight into how God desires his people to live according to these things than here amongst the family of God? We may not like what God's word has to say about submitting to our authorities, but let's not forget him who totally submitted to the governing authorities, even at the cost of his life. If you think submission to authority is unfair, look at Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? God, the one with all authority, and yet consider his life. Jesus was poor. He was born to Jewish peasants. 
He lived a life of poverty. He had no place to lay his head, Matthew 8, 20. He paid his taxes, Matthew 17. He submitted to those who came to arrest him. He stood quiet when accused. He allowed himself to be mocked, beaten, scourged, humiliated, and executed all when he was completely innocent, all when he had complete authority over the universe. Did the government abuse him? You know they did. His own people, the Jewish council and Rome, abused him, though he had never sinned. And he did all this for you. In his death, Jesus honored the governing authorities by submitting to their cruelty, and he worshiped the Father by submitting to the plan of redemption. In that act on the cross, Jesus both honored authority and worshiped God. Let's go and do the same. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you call us to live lives of submission. You know us in your word. You know how we are to honor our authority and worship you. And though you could have ignored all earthly authority, you chose to subject yourself instead. You chose even unto death to submit. Lord Jesus, we are so frail. In and of ourselves, we are naturally rebellious and cannot do this as we ought. And that's why you lived the life that we could not. Help us, Lord, to live honoring our authority and worship you. And we praise you and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.